Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chenny Wu. Let's take a look at our top stories. President Biden could soon decide whether to roll back tariffs on some Chinese goods. Officials are split on whether to do it or not. The Biden administration has an issue with a new law in Arizona. The law requires people to prove they are U.S. citizens before they get registered to vote. A government watchdog finds that the Biden White House is the most expensive ever. And one White House staff member is the highest paid ever. Police charged the suspect who opened fire during a 4th of July parade in Illinois with seven counts of first-degree murder. He allegedly opened fire from a rooftop. President Biden could soon roll back some of former President Trump's tariffs on Chinese goods. A decision could reportedly come as soon as this week. That's according to Bloomberg and The Wall Street Journal. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Amid high inflation, the White House says President Biden's team is looking at options on China tariffs. But Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre Tuesday said she didn't have a timeline for the decision. The president's team is continuing to look at our options uh, on how to move forward. Uh, as you know, the president and President Xi had a conversation back in March, and we continue to leave all communications lines open from the president on down. President Biden's been looking for ways to combat inflation, meeting with senior advisors over the past several weeks to come up with a solution. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has called for eliminating tariffs on household goods from China to reduce U.S. inflation. But that still wouldn't help with prices for food, fuel and housing, where inflation hurts the most. According to Bloomberg, Barclays Bank said rolling back tariffs on Chinese goods wouldn't do much, calling it a drop in the bucket for lowering U.S. prices. Another consideration is China's unfair trade practices, partly why Trump imposed the tariffs in the first place. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai wants to keep the tariffs for leverage. The Biden administration is trying to strike a balance between easing price pressures and keeping the pressure on China. Some Democrats and organized labor unions are also pushing Biden to keep the tariffs in place to protect U.S. jobs. Meanwhile, the U.S. and China held talks Tuesday to discuss global economic challenges. A Chinese spokesperson said China expressed concerns about the U.S. tariffs on Chinese imports. The U.S. said Secretary Yellen brought up China's unfair non-market economic practices. White House officials say Biden's expected to talk to Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping soon. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Arizona has a law requiring voters to prove that they are U.S. citizens. But the Biden administration disagrees. The Justice Department is suing Arizona over the law. Here are the details. The Department of Justice on Tuesday filed a 17-page complaint against the state of Arizona in federal court in Phoenix. They claim that Arizona's new voting law, House Bill 2492, violates two federal statutes on voter registration. The Arizona law requires applicants who register to vote provide satisfactory evidence of citizenship, such as copies of a birth certificate, passport, or naturalization documents. Under the law, county recorders have to reject applicants who don't meet the requirement. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey signed the bill into law in March. He said at that time, quote, election integrity means counting every lawful vote and prohibiting any attempt to illegally cast a vote. President Biden's Justice Department disagrees. 
They argue that, quote, as long as an individual completes the federal form and meets all its requirements and is otherwise eligible to vote, states must register that individual to vote in all federal elections in the state, including presidential elections. They say portions of the Arizona law violate the National Voter Registration Act and the Civil Rights Act. The department claims that the National Voter Registration Act bars state officials from requiring citizenship proof beyond a voter's attestation. They also say the Civil Rights Act that bars officials from rejecting voter applications due to an insignificant error or omission on any record. Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnvich reacted to the lawsuit saying, quote, I will defend this law to the U.S. Supreme Court if necessary. Have you ever wondered who in the White House gets paid the most? Data collected by a government watchdog shows it's Francis Collins, former director of the National Institutes of Health. Here are the details. Dr. Francis Collins left his position as director of the National Institutes for Health in December 2021 and later became President Biden's science advisor. According to data compiled by the nonprofit government watchdog Open the Books, Collins is the highest paid member of the White House. He gets paid $300,000 annually for advising the president. This is almost 50% more than what he made as head of the NIH over the past 12 years, which was over $203,000 annually. Open the Books obtained the data from the U.S. Office of Personnel Management under the Freedom of Information Act. Their report also found that the Biden White House is the most expensive White House since 1995, when such data was first reported. In 2021, President Biden had 560 people working for the White House at a total cost of $49.6 million. The average White House salary is over $98,000, and 23 assistants to the president each get paid $180,000 annually. In comparison, former President Trump spent $39.5 million on 377 White House staffers in his first year in office. Earlier this year, Open the Books uncovered that more than 1,600 NIH officials, scientists, and researchers received an estimated $350 million in secret royalty payments from sources outside the government between 2010 and 2020. Seven counts of first-degree murder. Those are the first charges against the Highland Park shooter who opened fire during a 4th of July parade. But we do believe Cremo pre-planned this attack for several weeks. Uh, he brought a high-powered rifle to this parade. Police in Highland Park on Tuesday said the suspect who opened fire from a rooftop onto an Independence Day parade, leaving seven people dead and dozens injured, seems to have planned the attack, but have so far found no motive. A spokesperson for the Lake County Sheriff's Office said 21-year-old Robert E. Cremo III legally purchased the rifle, fired more than 70 rounds into the crowd below, and disguised himself in women's clothing to flee. Deputy Chief Chris Covelli. Following the attack, Cremo exited the roof. He dropped his rifle, and he blended in with the crowd, and he escaped. Uh, he walked to his mother's home, who lived in the area, and he blended right in with everybody else as they were running around, almost as he was uh, an innocent spectator as well. Police arrested Cremo hours after the shooting. Prosecutors charged him with seven counts of first-degree murder, with more charges expected. Social media and other online posts written by accounts that appeared to be associated with either Cremo or his rapper alias Awake the Rapper often depicted violent images or messages. The accounts showed a man with physical characteristics and facial tattoos similar to those in photos of the suspect released by police. 
One music video posted to YouTube under Awake the Rapper, for example, showed drawings of a stick figure holding a rifle in front of another figure spread on the ground. Highland Park is a heavily Jewish suburb, but police said they had no evidence the shooter was motivated by any particular bias. Shooting appears to be completely random. Did you chose the community because of the high population of Jewish people? I know people are concerned that it was an anti-Semitic attack. We have no information to suggest at this point it was racially motivated, motivated by religion, or any other protected status. The July 4th attack turned a civic gathering into chaos as onlookers ran for cover. Six people were pronounced dead the day of the attack. Police on Tuesday said a seventh victim died from their injuries. Family members, friends, and local community members are mourning after the tragic shooting in Highland Park. Multiple church services were held on Tuesday, and people returned to the shooting site in a show of solidarity. Seven Blue Hearts are standing in front of Highland Park Presbyterian Church, representing the seven people who passed away. People gathered at the church and signed the hearts, showing support to affected family members and friends. People were still there, even after dark. At a different church, families gathered for community prayers. The pastor of that church said the prayer gathering was about them coming together as a community to grieve the loss. Um, and I think the key word there is to, to come together. Um, there's been a lot of things happening uh, in the past few years that have caused us to stop seeing each other as, as human beings, to stop seeing the dignity and worth in each other. He added that it's in moments of extreme darkness where people have the opportunity to be light. The scene of the shooting was still closed off on Tuesday. The FBI was seen inside the area of the shooting. A local couple, Brooke and Matt Strauss, dropped off flowers near the scene of the shooting. This is just, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Really hard to be here right now. The couple came from nearby Northbrook, Illinois, and is grieving with the community. We always come together, and it's just part of being from this area. We're always together. A lot of us believe the same beliefs, and we just want the best for everyone. Because of the shooting, a young boy was left orphaned after both of his parents were killed. Two-year-old Aiden McCarthy was reportedly found under his father, who was shot in the leg. First responders couldn't stop the bleeding. A GoFundMe was set up for the toddler's future care. It's called Irina and Kevin McCarthy, named after the two parents who passed away. As of Wednesday morning, over $2 million have been collected. The Department of Justice is paying $1.5 million to implement a transgender programming curriculum across all federal prisons. The curriculum is still being finalized, but the department's Federal Bureau of Prisons told the Epoch Times it'll teach, quote, techniques to seek support for mental health concerns and skills to advocate for physical, emotional, and sexual health and safety. Overseeing the program's development is private-owned entity The Change Companies. Since 2008, it has received $3.4 million in awards from the Bureau of Prisons in Nevada, West Virginia, California, and Kansas. The contract of $1.5 million for transgender-specific programming was one of the largest from the federal agency to date. And the Bureau of Prisons says a little less than 1% of the total number of federal inmates identify as transgender. The curriculum will involve programs that include assistance to help inmates transition back into society and a support group addressing re-entry needs and managing identity concerns. 
Coming up, a small but growing group of power companies, railways and delivery services like Amazon lead the way with special permission to fly drones beyond visual line of sight. Troops from 26 nations are gathered for joint maritime drills in Hawaii and Southern California. The Defense Department calls it the world's largest international maritime exercise. Baby neck floats are in the spotlight again after the Food and Drug Administration warned against their use. One baby died and another was hospitalized after unsupervised usage. The agency said in a statement that they especially shouldn't be used by babies with developmental delays or special needs. And the FDA said both cases happened when a caregiver was not directly monitoring the baby. Neck floats are inflatable plastic rings that can be placed around babies' necks. The device is designed to allow infants to float freely in water. Common uses include during a baby's bath or when swimming. It's also used as a physical therapy tool. Some floats are marketed for babies as young as two weeks old and premature babies. These products have not received official approval or clearance as physical therapy tools nor has their effectiveness or safety been fully established. In 2017, health experts also warned against the use of baby neck floats. Evacuation orders have been expanded for remote communities near wildfire that's chewing through California forests. Sierra Nevada Gold County fire tripled in size to more than 4.7 square miles on Tuesday. Evacuations are in place for parts of Amador and Calavera counties. More than 100 fire engines, 1,200 firefighters, and 14 helicopters were sent to the fire. The California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection said blaze was a threat to power infrastructure. The terrain has, was described as steep and rugged. The fire erupted on the 4th of July at a recreation, recreation area packed with people between 85 to 100. Celebrating at a river were forced to take shelter at a Pacific Gas and Electric facility. Amador County Sheriff Gary Redmond says they were safely evacuated. Redmond suggested fireworks or a barbecue as a possible cause of the fire. A helicopter crew from Oregon rescues a climber who fell on Mount Hood Saturday morning. The Clackamas County Sheriff's Office says the 43-year-old man dropped at least 600 feet from the summit ridge. He suffered significant injuries. The rescuers were able to get to the scene and start medical treatment. The man was later transported to a local hospital. No word on his condition. This is the second recent accident in about a week reported in the area. On June 24th, a 31-year-old woman also fell hundreds of feet from the summit ridge. She was evacuated by helicopter with critical injuries. For years, flying civilian drones has meant keeping the aircraft within your line of sight. But recently, some drones have gotten permission to soar out of their pilot's view. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. A small but growing group of power companies, railways, and delivery services like Amazon are leading the way with special permission to fly drones beyond visual line of sight. As of early July, the Federal Aviation Administration had approved 230 of the waivers. 
one of them for Virginia-based Dominion Energy. It uses drones to inspect its network of power plants and transmission lines. We've been working very closely for the last four years now with the FAA on regulations such as this. Uh, so for us to get a beyond visual line of sight waiver uh, is a good win for us. And it's certainly just the, the first stepping stone on where we want to take this program. Aviation authorities in the U.S. and elsewhere are preparing to relax some of the rules, following a boom in off-the-shelf consumer drones over the past decade. Businesses want simpler regulations that could open skies to new commercial applications for drones. Small drones with little human oversight will deliver packages, assess home insurance claims, or buzz around on nighttime security patrols. No, I mean, that capability is huge. Certainly on an inspection type uh, of situation like this where you would have to erect scaffolding or have people go in with a bucket truck, now you can go in on a 20-minute flight. An inspection that may have taken a week, you can do it in 20 minutes. Uh, capture all the angles that you want, videos, go back to your desk, look at that. But privacy advocates and some airplane and balloon pilots are still wary. You have a company who is controlling, you know, thousands upon thousands of drone operations flying over populated areas. You know, that's an opportunity for them to collect information. And if we don't have some type of transparency and protection in place, well, if they see an opportunity to minimize data collection as their drones are flying around delivering packages, well, they will do that. The FAA said it is still reviewing who will be able to fly beyond line of sight, but has signaled that permission will be reserved for commercial applications, not hobbyists. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The last surviving member of World War II's famous E-Company, Bradford Freeman, has passed away. The veteran died Sunday in Columbus, Mississippi at the age of 97. The obituary says a graveside funeral will be held this Friday in Caledonia, Mississippi, where he had been living. Freeman was an 18-year-old student when he enlisted to fight in World War II. He volunteered to become a paratrooper and became a mortarman in Company E, 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne Division. He parachuted into Normandy on D-Day, fought in Operation Market Garden, and was wounded in the Battle of Bulge. After the war, Freeman returned to Caledonia and served there as a postal clerk for 32 years. Historian Stephen Ambrose's bestseller, Band of Brothers, captured the story of E Company. The book inspired the 2001 HBO miniseries of the same name. He's survived by a sister, two daughters, four grandchildren, and ten great-grandchildren. Militaries from many countries have gathered in Hawaii and Southern California. It's for the Rim of the Pacific, or RIMPAC, military exercises. The Defense Department calls RIMPAC the world's largest international maritime exercise. There are 26 nations, 38 ships, 4 submarines, and more than 170 aircraft. 25,000 personnel are taking part in the exercises, which go from June 29th to August 4th. This year marks the 28th time the exercises have taken place since they began in 1971. The purpose is to maintain safety in sea lanes and security in the world's oceans. Special operations forces from the U.S., India, and South Korea conducted live fire exercises in Hawaii on June 30th. The Twitter account for RIMPAC shows Korean and U.S. Marines taking part in cooperative exercises. The sea portion of the exercises will begin on July 12th, and the closing ceremony is scheduled for August 4th. 
And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Coming up, Russian forces shell Ukraine's Donetsk region. One of Russia's aims since the beginning was for Ukraine to hand the region to pro-Russia separatists. And Cyprus is eyeing new markets for struggling tourism industry. The country has been losing Russian-speaking tourists because of the war. Learn more after the break on NTD News. unlikely that Secretary of State Antony Blinken will meet with Russia's foreign minister at the G20 foreign ministers meeting. The forum brings together leaders of key economic powers. The secretary uh, intends to engage fully uh, in the G20. I'm not going to uh, speak to any plans on the part of uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov or any other uh, ministerial level participant, but I can tell you the secretary will be a full and active participant in the G20, which we see uh, as a valuable forum. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov will be in attendance. It marks the first time that he and Blinken will be in the same room at the same time in nearly six months. The Biden administration has ruled out business as usual with Russia while it remains in Ukraine. And U.S. officials said there would be no formal discussions between Blinken and Lavrov in Bali. But they cannot rule out the possibility of a chance encounter. They last met in Geneva in January. Blinken does plan to meet his Chinese counterpart there. Strained U.S.-China ties will be the focus of their talks. The broader G20 gathering will almost certainly focus on the Ukraine conflict and its effect on global food and energy security. The Chinese regime and many other G20 nations, including India, South Africa and Brazil, have resisted signing onto the U.S. and Europe's opposition to Russia's invasion. Russian forces are shelling Ukraine's eastern Donetsk region. It's an effort to take more territory in the region as the five-month-old war enters a new phase. Here's more. Russian forces struck targets across Ukraine's eastern Donetsk region on Tuesday to prepare the path for an expected armored thrust to take more territory. A market in the city of Sloviansk was struck by Russian forces, killing at least two people and injuring seven, according to officials. Smoke billowed from an auto supply shop and flames engulfed rows of market stalls. The Russian Defense Ministry says it does not target residential areas and added it had used what it called high-precision weapons to destroy command centers and artillery in Donetsk. The capture of the Ukrainian city of Lysychansk on Sunday means all of Luhansk region is now in Russian hands, fulfilling one of Moscow's main war goals. Now Russian forces are aiming to take full control of Donetsk, the other region in Donbass. Since the outset of the conflict, Russia has demanded that Ukraine hand both Luhansk and Donetsk to Moscow-backed separatists, who have declared their independence. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that despite Ukraine's withdrawal from Lysychansk, its troops continue to fight. The governor of Luhansk said Ukrainian forces, which retreated from Lysychansk at the weekend, 
took up new defensive lines in Donetsk. Both sides have suffered heavy casualties in the fight for Luhansk, particularly during the siege of the twin cities of Lysychansk and Sivrodonetsk. Both have been left wrecked. Russians are one of the main sources of tourists in Cyprus, except this year due to the war in Ukraine. The Mediterranean island is now targeting new markets to make up for the losses. Let's take a look. Cyprus is a popular destination for vacationing Russians in the Mediterranean. But since the war in Ukraine broke out and the EU placed sanctions on Russia, the number of Russian-speaking tourists has dropped to near zero in the island country. Our loss is certainly large. And this loss of 800,000 Russian tourists, most of whom came to our district, has already cost us a lot. And we see that there's a huge problem in our work. Russian and Ukrainian travelers made up one-fifth of Cyprus tourism in 2019. Their decline has since cut into the country's revenue, where tourism accounts for 10 percent of the economy. We're talking about um, a loss in revenue of uh, up to 600 million euros, um, which, uh, again, if we compare that to the 2.7 billion that we made as a tourism industry in 2019, um, that's, again, an important uh, amount. Along Cyprus's popular eastern coastline, some hotels are also feeling the sting. There are hotels, uh, especially in the Famagusta area, uh, Agia Napa and Protaras, uh, which are suffering mostly because they had uh, extensive contracts with tour operators from Russia. Hotel owners are trying a new scheme to bring back Russian tourists. We are maintaining close cooperation with Russian uh, clients and uh, exploring possibilities of getting them into Cyprus through points in Europe or outside Europe which are not affected by the sanctions. In the meantime, more tourists from the European market are expected to visit this summer. Officials say a sizable chunk of the lost revenue will likely be covered thanks to a vision to find new markets even before the war. Twenty new flights will take off this year directly from France to Cyprus. Weekly flights from Germany and Scandinavian countries have increased to 50 and 30, respectively. Catering to Europeans, Cyprus even offers new vegan-friendly hotels and winery tours through mountain villages. We hope that as the season uh, goes on, uh, the situation will be improving. They might not achieve the numbers that they were anticipating, but uh, at least uh, they have some uh, solution with these other markets, especially the European ones. Other countries like Turkey, Cuba and Egypt also rely on Russian and Ukrainian tourists. Coming up, Italy will hold the first court hearing in the trial of a deadly bridge collapse four years ago. Almost 60 people are scheduled to appear before the court. And a suspect accused of killing a Maltese journalist confesses to the crime. He says he will soon implicate others involved in the assassination plot. Learn more in just a moment on NTD News. Today, an Italian court will hold the first hearing in the trial of a deadly bridge collapse four years ago. Almost 60 people are scheduled to appear before court. The companies that operated the bridge allegedly avoided proper checks of the state of the infrastructure. 
They allegedly also didn't correct serious issues that had started to emerge only a few years after the viaduct had opened in the 60s. The two companies paid settlements so they wouldn't be sent to trial. The almost 60 people will appear as individuals. The bridge collapsed in 2018, killing 43 people. Some say it reflects the state of Italy's poor infrastructure. Rocco Morabito, a fugitive drug lord with powerful ties to the Ndrangheta criminal gang, landed in Italy today after being extradited from Brazil to serve a 30-year prison sentence. Morabito was arrested in Brazil in May last year after more than two decades on the run. The Interior Ministry said Morabito was a top broker of international drug trafficking. He was included on the list of the ministry's most dangerous fugitives. In recent years, Brazil has become a key player in the transatlantic drug trade, with its gangs connecting with Italian, Dutch and Balkan players to move record loads of cocaine to Europe, lured by high prices and growing demand. The Andrangheta is based in the southern region of Calabria, the toe of Italy's boot and has surpassed Cosa Nostra as become, to become the most powerful mafia group in the country and one of the largest crime gangs in the world. The man accused of killing a prominent Maltese journalist has confessed to the crime. He confessed in an interview with a Reuters reporter and says he will soon implicate others in the assassination plot. In his first ever comments on a case that shocked Europe, Speaking from jail, George DiGiorgio said he would soon implicate others in plotting to assassinate Daphne Caruana Galizia. Caruana Galizia was killed in a car bombing in 2017 after leveling corruption allegations against prominent figures on the island. If he knew more about her, DiGiorgio said, he would have asked for more money to carry out the hit. His admission came after several attempts by his lawyers to secure a pardon in return for testimony. Until now, he had denied involvement in the killing. In 2017, Maltese authorities charged him, his brother, and an associate with murdering Caruana Galizia at the behest of one of the island's richest businessmen, Jorgen Fennec. DiGiorgio told Reuters he would plead guilty ahead of any jury trial and vowed not to, quote, go down alone. In France, railway workers went on strike today. It's just a couple of days before the summer holidays kick in in the Western European country. France is facing a tough social climate, as most people's salaries are worth less due to record high inflation. Three of the four main unions at France's state-owned railway operator are taking part in the strike. They're asking for a general increase in their salaries, an inflation-based catch-up of their wages, and for bonuses and benefits to be re-evaluated. Macron's new government is due to present a much-awaited package of inflation relief measures later in the day. And unions are discussing their next move after Wednesday's action. They may announce more strikes over the summer. The tourism sector in Spain is getting ready for a busy summer, as travel reaches or even surpasses pre-pandemic levels. But staff shortages could lead to travel misery for many holidaymakers. NTD's Joy Felix has the report. Maravina Rodriguez is relieved to have a full house at her bar in central Madrid after the pandemic ravaged her business, but now she faces another headache. She is struggling to find staff for the busy summer season 
while keeping her business profitable as taxes rise and inflation soars. There's a waiter crisis because of salaries and long hours. But I think this is a structural crisis of the economy and workplace in Spain, not just the hospitality sector. If we keep on being short of waiters, in the future there will be no bars. Workforce shortages have left her with no option but to do multiple jobs in a day, from negotiating with suppliers in the morning to serving tables and cooking until the bar shuts at 1am. Waiter Felix Tellis is Rodrigo's right-hand man. Because of the income, low salaries and all the work reforms we have seen in the past years in which we have been losing rights. You work a lot and get paid a little. That's the main problem. Spain has the second highest youth unemployment rate in Europe, with nearly 30% of people under 25 out of work. Although they need work, young people are often put off from joining the service industry due to the seasonality and low wages. You go out on the street and ask someone, do you want to be a bartender or a waiter? Firstly, they wouldn't even know what the specific responsibilities would be, and then they would say, no. Why would I? Jose Carlos Sacco said his bar could only open on the weekend when students in need of extra cash had no classes and were available to work. He is struggling to find qualified staff on weekdays. We would like to extend the restaurant opening hours, but we have a limited amount of resources. For instance, we are not opening the restaurant during the week because we don't have workers. Our people during the week are studying. If they study, they can't work. And if they can't work, we can't open. According to Union, Spain tourist sector pays around £1,000 per month and its catering industry is 200,000 workers short. Joy Felix, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Coming up, a brand new design that bridges the gap between cars and bikes. The company that launched it says it's safer than driving an e-bike or moped. And a small group of railway engineers in Hungary keep their passion for steam locomotives alive and help the state-run railway hold special nostalgia trips. More on that in just a moment. A new social media platform focusing on free speech and clean content just launched on Independence Day in New York. Entity's Tiffany Meyer was on the scene to see what the buzz was about. There's a new company in Middletown, New York, and we're here at the opening ceremony. Genjing World is a new digital platform with an ambitious mission, and even the mayor is here. Let's take a look. providing a clean digital platform where people can browse videos and information free of concerns about what they see. Ganjing World literally translates to a clean world. It's just a breath of fresh air to know that this is good, clean content. The mayor of Middletown for over two decades was also in attendance at the grand opening. Bringing in these high-tech jobs, um, you know, the economic benefits for us are tremendous and the quality of people that come with it 
are also tremendous. So um, it's a win for our city, a win for our region. James Chiu is CEO of the new company Ganjing World. So on our platform, we promote free speech. We want people to deliver the messages they want it to deliver. As long as it's clean, it's pure, and it's useful. Chiu says the firm uses AI technology, which can recognize improper content and eliminate it automatically. We want people to be able to stay with us, and we want them to feel safe, and we want them to bring their kids here because it's a safe and a clean place. Liam O'Neill is a father of three. He's also a spokesperson for the Falun Dafa Association in Middletown, New York. It's good, clean content that helps character, that helps uh, development, and I think it'll find a broad market everywhere around the world because everyone is talking about it, and no one can do anything about it. But Ganjing World, what an ambitious project uh, and vision. It is trying to do something about it. O'Neill says many people are leaving New York City, and a lot of them are moving to Orange County, New York. The city of Middletown and Orange County as a whole are one of the fastest growing regions, is one of the fastest growing regions in the United States. This company, Ganjing World, is equally vibrant um, with a very bold vision and I think it's a perfect match. As you can see, lots of excitement here on the ground and there's more to come. Ganjing World's English side is set to launch in one month, so keep an eye out. Tiffany Meyer, NTD News, New York. Amazon is taking a stake in Grubhub and offering it to customers in a partnership deal. That's good news for Just Eat Takeaway, which bought the struggling delivery business last year. A relief for Just Eat Takeaway. Amazon is taking a 2% stake in its struggling U.S. meal delivery service Grubhub and will offer Amazon Prime members the service for one year. Just Eat Takeaway bought Grubhub last year for $5.8 billion in shares, but its own shares have fallen 70% this year, as investors demand it sell it again or find Grubhub a partner. The stock gained over 16% in morning trade following the latest news. Amazon announced the deal as part of its Prime Day promotion on Wednesday. Customers will get free delivery on orders over $12 in the 4,000 cities where Grubhub operates. That will drive traffic to Grubhub, which has lost share to competitors as the lockdown-driven demand for takeaways wanes. In exchange, Amazon will receive warrants representing 2% of Grubhub's shares and an additional 13% of shares if the deal brings Grubhub enough customers. Just Eat Takeaway said in a statement the deal was expected to expand Grubhub membership and start boosting its cash flow from next year onwards. Over in the UK, a startup company is launching a product that bridges the gap between cars and bikes. Its designers say they hope this product will make driving electric vehicles more affordable. Northern Light Motors says its car-bike hybrid vehicles are extremely energy efficient and a fraction of the cost of a regular electric vehicle. The company's founder, Graham Brown, explains why he decided to design it. Okay, so my, my background's in car design, um, working for major OEMs, uh, and I've been getting increasingly frustrated with the complexity of the vehicles, with the legislation that we've got to get, comply with. So. I think a simple vehicle that's got the key ingredients, i.e. weather protection, some safety, some luggage, uh, is the way forward. The company offers three models. One is pedal-powered, another has pedals assisted by electric power, and the third one is fully electric. 
The founder explains what he believes are key elements to this new vehicle. It is all about building that a, a gap between um, bridging the gap between bike and car. Um, I think the key the key elements to that are, like I said, the luggage requirement, the safety element, and the aerodynamics as well. So you get a massive benefit by having an enclosed body with which is low drag. You get much more efficiency out of that as well. The vehicles have an aerodynamic body design and they include lights, indicators, and front and rear crumple zones, which act like a safety cocoon for the driver. Uh, all of the contactable surfaces are well above bumper height, which is an, another important consideration. It's got massive crumple zones, especially at the rear, with the wheels, for example, and then it's got bulkheads, internal bulkheads, which are set back from the front and inboard from the rear, so that there's extra safety there as well, and there's, there's core materials in the composites as well. So it's much safer than driving a an e-bike or a moped, and somewhere between a moped and a car. The pedal-powered model starts from $4,800, and the fully electric model starts from $7,450. Full production starts this summer, and the first fully electric models will be delivered early next year. A small group of railway engineers in Hungary are keeping their passion for steam locomotives alive. They're helping the state-run railway stay up and running by maintaining the old trains. And they now take special nostalgia trips. Here's more. In the century-old workshop in Budapest, an old steam locomotive is getting some special attention. This giant maintenance shed was once a hive of activity. Now, just a few dedicated engineers are here. Whoever works here in this workshop is either stupid or possessed. That's who we are, whichever phrase you prefer. But I feel we all fall into the category of obsessiveness, and we are here precisely because we love this place. To some people, these workshops are mausoleums of the past. Others are almost reverential about the old machines. History is the first thing that makes the beauty of the work for us who are here. I think it's really cool that in 2022, we will be working on repair on a vehicle built in 1905. The oldest engineer here is 80-year-old Miklos Naj. He started his career in this workshop in 1968. He says he can remember when the cavernous building was filled with a much larger and busier workforce. Each phase of the work has had its own specialists. People have worked in separate groups. There were people who only fixed the brakes, people who only worked on the brake cylinders or the bodywork. Every step of the process had its own master craftsman. But then time has passed by and just a few of us are left. And Naj adds he can't imagine doing any other job. These machines are just something that people have grown to love. The only thing I've learned is to fix these. I'd miss them, and really, when you hear the locomotive's whistle, your heart beats faster. For me, it was my whole life, the steam locomotive repair. Hungary State Railway Company currently owns three working steam-powered locomotives, and it's offering enthusiasts special nostalgia trips to celebrate the railway's heyday. At its height during the 20th century in socialist Hungary, the workshop employed some 1,500 maintenance workers. Today, there are just 13 people working here. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, conservationists in Vietnam set up camera traps in nearly a thousand locations to gather data for conservation in the country's most important areas for biodiversity.
wildlife in Vietnam faces many threats, including poaching and habitat loss. Now, a project to set up camera traps in nearly a thousand locations is underway. To gather data for conservation in Vietnam's top areas for biodiversity. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Phong Nha Ki Bang is Vietnam's largest national park and is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The area is among eight national parks and nature reserves across Vietnam. Conservationists are undertaking a project there to set up camera traps and survey the distribution and diversity of animals. The best location to set up a camera trap has to consist of the two conditions. First, it has to be at a rather flat area, and secondly, it has to be on the path that animals could pass by. That way, it can take better photos with more species of animals. The project is a joint effort by the Worldwide Fund for Nature and Flora and Fauna International. The camera is equipped with a motion sensor and a thermal sensor and automatically snaps shots of animals passing by. The camera trap functions like a normal camera. What is different is that it can self-activate to snap photos using a motion sensor and a thermal sensor. When the animals go by the camera, it will automatically take the photos. One of the most notable animals is the rare and elusive Saula. The Saula is listed as critically endangered on the IUCN's red list of threatened species, with an estimated fewer than 750 in existence. It has only been recorded in the wild five times from camera trap photos. That's according to the IUCN website. The camera trap can take photos of some rare and very rare species that are extremely difficult for us to spot in the jungle. With the detailed photos taken by the camera trap, scientists can collect more data on the animals. Three months after installing the camera traps, Tuan and his team will return to collect photos and data. In three years, they will install the cameras again in the same locations. The comparison of data with a three-year span will help conservationists access the site's biodiversity status and draw up suitable policies for conservation. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Auction House Sotheby's New York is giving people the chance to own a rare skeleton of a dinosaur. The skeleton of a Gorgosaurus dinosaur will be up for auction later this month. The skeleton comes from a dinosaur that roamed the Earth 77 million years ago. The auction house says the skeleton is one of the most valuable to ever appear on the market. It's expected to fetch 5 to 8 million dollars. The skeleton was found in 2018 in the Judith River Formation in Montana. It's nearly 10 feet tall and 22 feet long. The Gorgosaurus is a close relative of the Tyrannosaurus rex, but slightly smaller in size. A typical adult male could weigh up to two tons. The auction house says this is the only skeleton of a dinosaur found in the U.S. that's in commerce. The auction will take place live on July 28th. Tiredness is something many of us struggle with, but there are ways to have more energy. Let's hear more from Gina Marie on this with Strong Mind and Body. Some people who struggle with fatigue describe it in many ways. Some can't get out of bed in the morning, but once they get going, they're okay. 
Others say their energy sinks as the day goes on until they're almost lifeless by dinner time. And there are also people who are exhausted all day long. Here are 11 things that you can do to help refill your tank. Number one, eat really good food. Not rich, expensive restaurant food, but good food as in healthy. Eat lots of fruits and dark leafy vegetables, whole grains, nuts and beans. Get a little protein in with each meal and eat a good breakfast. Number two, get enough fiber in your diet. Fiber slows the absorption of the sugars you happen to eat and prevents dramatic crashes in your blood sugar. It's also key for good digestion. Number three, check your digestion, especially if you're having any symptoms like heartburn, bloating, a lump in your throat, stomach aches, poor appetite, gas, nausea, constipation, and loose stools. If you're having any of these digestion problems, then you may need a little extra help. Acupuncture and Chinese medicine can really help in the digestion department. Number four, get enough sleep. This may not sound like rocket science, but you still need a solid seven or eight hours a night. Again, Chinese medicine can help here. Number five, check your blood pressure. Fatigue is a hallmark sign of high blood pressure, so it's something to keep in mind. Number six, get moving. While it may seem counterintuitive to try to exercise when you're feeling so tired, a little movement actually gets your energy, in the Chinese sense, flowing. Take a walk, go for a bike ride, or play a game of tennis. Number seven, stretch. It invigorates your muscles and also gets stuff moving. Number eight, get organized. Clutter is exhausting and stressful. It's like indigestion in your home. Get rid of the junk and you'll feel lighter and more energized. Number nine, just say no to energy sapping work-related stress. Number 10, say no to trying to be everything to everybody. It's overwhelming, it's stressful, and it's an energy suck. Learn to say no in the nicest possible way. Number 11, go outside. It's invigorating and can help to elevate your mood and motivation. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email on the screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Chenny Wu.